drove up this morning, I saw these white things on the, the lawn, and I thought the pastor had been forked. I thought someone had some bad intentions, if you will. But I wasn't forked, I was just merely fleeced. So, for that I'm grateful and humbled, and uh, grateful to serve here at Berean Community Church. It really is my privilege, and uh, may the Lord continue His work in us and through us. So here's a question. What is, or what are the qualifications of a spiritual leader? For those who want to serve Christ, those who want to help shepherd God's people. Where are my glasses? Here they are. Um, Is it a degree? A degree, whether it's an associate's or a postgraduate degree from a prestigious Bible school or seminary or college, if you will. Is it a certificate of ordination or licensure indicating that you have passed muster of a particular denomination's theological requirements or their style of ministry? Is it a letter of approval from the right people who are connected in a particular group or area? Or maybe it's doing an apprenticeship or a an internship at a particular church under a particular pastor. Or maybe it's someone who's sought to dial it back and go back to the beginning, how the church really worshipped in the first century through creeds and through liturgy and its earliest practices and maybe is eschewing some of the things that we do currently. Now don't hear me discredit or poo-pooing any type of ministry training or preparation. I'm I'm a great believer in those things for um, preparation and equipping. However, those things I've listed all have their origin and their approval and qualification and validation through human eyes and on a horizontal level, rather than examining what God is doing in Christ and bringing to fruition from His transforming (coughs) vertical hand. You know, one of the major themes of this letter of 2 Corinthians that we've been going through is out of chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That's God-born, not human-born. The oldest past, the new, has come. So when our sights are purely focused on human or on a horizontal level, it's easy to miss what God is doing or has done in what we might suspect as an unlikely candidate. And someone like Paul, who probably had a lot of these human credentials, even the church he had planted himself was not so sure about him because he didn't flaunt them. He didn't lean into them probably because he didn't want this immature church to put their faith and confidence in such things. But again, rather in Jesus Christ, the one who transforms hearts. So here we are in chapter 3 today, and we're going to look at the first six verses and see how, really, the Apostle Paul creates a different picture for what brings 
competence, what brings qualification. So let's look at these first six verses. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or we do, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but of tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let me pray and then we'll dig into what the Lord has for us today. Lord, we certainly do confess that our competence is not in ourselves, but in you. I pray you'll help us to see that plainly. And help us, Lord, to see what you have for us in your love letter to us today. Help us to grasp these things and move and lean into you, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And help us to walk in faith in all that you have promised, and all that you are, and all that you're doing in us and through us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Well, if you've been following through this letter, it's pretty obvious that Paul has a complicated relationship with this church that he planted in Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. But the Lord Jesus Christ... He sent Paul to Corinth to plant the gospel, to help people find new life in Jesus Christ. Everyone who was in Christ was a new creation. It was a result of Paul's work, that Christ was working in him and through him. And I just lost my page. There we go. I'd like to say I have this memorized, but I don't. And you would think that they would hold Paul in high esteem because of that, in gratitude. That that, just that in itself, that he had planted this church, that they had come to Christ through him, would, you know, give great loyalty and and fealty to him. However, they're not so enamored with their planting pastor. Well, one of the things is he sent them a rebuking and correcting letter. And you know, sometimes it's, it's hard to think well of somebody who corrects you. You feel a little, like there's something between us. You, you yelled at us, Paul. I don't think he yelled at them, but he did correct them. And then he changed his plans to visit them. We've talked about, you can read about that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. The other thing is, you know, In comparison, maybe he wasn't as engaging as some of the other ministers that came through town a little bit later. We read about that in his first 
his first letter to the Corinthians. Some were saying, you know, I really like that Apollos guy. Man, he is so smart. And he brings things to life. And they'll say, well, I, I really like that, that Simon guy. You know, Simon Peter, he's a fisherman. He tells great stories. And Paul said, look, we're all serving Christ here. We're not divided. But they were divided. They were divided. And then the other issue is this. His gospel. It's super simple. Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, it, it, it is the fact. But it's kind of simple. It's, it's kind of a downer. Especially in the Roman world. You know, no one wants to talk about a, a crucified Savior. Yeah, yeah, I know he, he rose from the dead and gives us eternal life, but that's kind of kind of scary. Kind of a downer. And also, you know, those new itinerant preachers who are coming from Jerusalem and talking about getting back to the law and how we need to start keeping that, that's well, that's kind of cool. I'm kind of fascinated about that. I, I really haven't done a lot of work in the Old Testament. And I, I kind of like that. It's interesting to me. Getting back to the roots, if you will. The bottom line is they were questioning and discounting Paul's apostleship, especially in light of these new teachers that were coming into town who Paul kind of calls super apostles in chapter 11. And we'll get there eventually. But again, they're asking, did Paul have the right human credentials? And here's the point. Human commendation in ministry is not a substitute for what is written on the hearts by Christ. That's a long sentence, but let me repeat it. Human commendation in ministry is not a substitute for what is written on hearts by Christ. Going back to verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And don't you kind of just sense Paul's frustration here? Like, after all we've been through, after all that has happened by the hand of Christ, are you looking for some sort of horizontal accreditation? And here's the irony. Paul actually had it. He could have pulled it. If you, if you read back in the end of uh, Acts 15, the Apostle Paul and Silas were given this letter to take to the Gentile churches to talk about you know, their endorsement, but also what they expected as far as Gentiles following Christ and following the law, or not following the law. He could have pulled that out. He said, this is it. This is, my, this is my license. This is my accreditation, if you will. But he didn't. He didn't because he wanted to move away from that. He wanted to move towards what Christ was doing. The actual spiritual action was taking place in their hearts. He says in verse 2, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. That's the letter. You. Your faith. And we've told everyone. Brothers and sisters in Macedonia. Brothers and sisters in Achaia, like in Athens. 
And even when I was up in Troas, I was so concerned about you, I cut, I cut short my evangelism tour and came back to Macedonia because I, I needed to know if you had abandoned your faith. I needed to know were you still accepting my leadership in your lives. It's the letter written by Christ in your hearts. It didn't come through the medium of ink. No, it was written on your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And His power in opening your eyes to the Gospel. And He says, not written on stone tablets. And we're going to get there a little bit later in this chapter, but it's a reference toward the Ten Commandments, toward the Old Testament law. It's not written there on those tablets. No, it's written on your human hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 6, he talks about being a minister of a new covenant. And that means there's an old covenant that's out there as well. The letter, the law, the Old Testament. Now we are Bereans and we value the Word of God, both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But here's what we do know. The Old Testament law cannot save the Old Testament law is really unable to change hearts, and it can only reveal our sin and our need for a Savior. It cannot save us. But even worse, there's just the Old Testament history of what happened with the, the people that did have the whole Old Testament law before them. Their hearts became hard. They had the law, and they said, no thanks, I'm going to do this. And God eventually brings judgment in order that he might redeem them eventually. But their hearts became hard like stone. But you know what's interesting? As God promises this new covenant, this is its description in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and put a spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone, because it has become hard, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, it's the spirit that's giving life there, not the law. Again, back to Paul saying, guys, do we want to digress looking for a human letter of commendation? Jesus has written it. He's written it in your hearts. It's the transforming work that he's done through you. And God used me to do it. Now there's a relational aspect to this whole thing too. It's not just, hey, I brought the information, you responded, and it's great. No. I, who Christ has changed me, brought you this message as Christ's apostle, and Christ changed you. And now we're both in Christ, and we have a relationship to each other. We are part of the same body. We're part of the same family. It's not just institutional, it's just not informational, it's not just man-approved, but it's born out of Christ in me to the Christ in you through His Holy Spirit. And now we have a relationship, we can care for one another. You know, Pastor Paul, even though he was, he was rebuking and correcting this, this congregation, he loved them. He loved them deeply. They just needed Christ to do some work in their hearts for them to love Him back. But let me show you, tell you a story about a shepherd 
who needed a little heart change in himself. It's the one standing before you in the ministry a few years back. But I was in seminary. I'd finished three years. I was doing urban ministry. Thoughts that was what God was calling me to. And then God pulled my roots up through some friends and some other circumstances and brought me up to the suburbs to do ministry with singles up in the suburbs of Chicago. Very wealthy area. And it fulfilled an institutional need because I used it for my field ed. But I was there kicking and screaming. I did not want to be there. I was with these singles and I just viewed them as entitled and spoiled. And if the truth would be told, I probably had a little bit of urban snobbery in me at the time. And for that first year of ministering to them, I was just I was just putting up with them. And maybe they were just putting up with me. But then at the end of the year, through the Holy Spirit, through the senior pastor, I was confronted saying, do you love these people who you're called to, to tend, to care for, to feed my lambs, feed my sheep? The senior pastor confronted me, and Jesus confronted me in that. And I had to say, you're right. I need to repent. And something amazing took place. Once I had repented of that and turned my heart towards what God was doing, all of a sudden, I fell in love with these, these singles. And they fell in love with me. And I'm going to tell you, at that church, it was, it was like the Holy Spirit just blew up among us. And we were like the, we were like the, the Marines of the, of the church. I mean, just doing ministry, it was awesome. We were like the lighthouse of the whole, of the whole church. Sixty strong. We called ourselves the Great Adventure. And I'm going to tell you, my heart was knit to them and them to me. And in fact, this, at the end of the summer, I got to go back and see one of, our, one of those singles get married and just connect with so many of them. And it's like, our, we're forever joined together. Nothing will change that because we have walked with Christ together and shared our lives together. But God had to change my heart towards them. But that's the thing. They are written on my heart, and I'm written on their hearts because of that, because of Christ. Praise His name. And that's the point. That's the point. It's not, yeah, I had an MDiv. Yeah, I was accredited in the missionary church doing work there, but that wasn't, that wasn't the commendation. It was Christ's work in my heart and in their hearts. That's what Jesus is doing. So let's take care in looking for human credentials and neglecting what God is doing by His Holy Spirit. Especially in someone that may not have them. I'm looking at my brother Jeff here, and I know he's spent a lot of time in Cuba, working with a lot of pastors. You know, a lot of those guys probably don't have a degree, an education, a denomination behind them. They're just available and God is using them, using them to minister to his flock. And he's knitting their hearts to them. And Paul is saying, look, let's look past the horizontal. 
Let's get our eyes on Jesus. Let's have our hope and faith and confidence in Him. And so in verse 4 he says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. To a church that's enamored with strength and gifting and wisdom and confidence, he says, guys, let's get our eyes off of that. Let's get our eyes back on Jesus and what He's doing in you and through, through you and through me. And then he points to himself as an example. And we're going to pick it up at verses 5 and 6. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of, let, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Competency of a ministry call is found ultimately in Christ. Competency even to live the Christian life is ultimately found in Christ. That's where the competency comes from. That's where the competence comes. You know, and and Paul saying this, this is not just false humility. And even though maybe the Corinthians didn't think a whole lot about Paul, he's no slouch. By, that world, by worldly standards. He was a former Pharisee. He went through strict, strict, strict religious training. He probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. He knew it. He went through the school of Gamaliel. That was a certain, certain school of thought. It was, it was famous in that time. He was also very literate. He spoke Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and he wrote all those as well. He also had Roman citizenship, which not a lot of people had. It opened a lot of doors for him. He had a lot going for him. But he had long since abandoned his reliance on his own resources, his own strength, and his own giftedness. He says, you know what? I'm not looking to those things. I'm not looking to my resume. I'm looking to Christ. And I wonder when he first realized that. I wonder when that first came into view, like, I don't have it. And maybe when he first came to Christ, right? And he was excited, and he wanted to share with everyone, i got to tell you, I I was once fighting Jesus, and now I'm his follower. You know how the response was? Get away from me. (laughs) I don't want to have anything to do with you. Because I don't know whether you're real or not, but you are a, you're a, you're a porcupine, buddy. Stay away from me. Or maybe it was the first time he was stoned in Iconium. Or beaten and jailed in Philippi. Or one of the many times he was shipwrecked. Hmm. I don't have this. I don't have what it takes. And every person who seeks to serve the Lord... Anyone who's ever sought to live their life for him comes to that realization somehow, somewhere along the way. Because some situation is just overwhelming. You just go, I don't have this. I can't do this on my own. My own talents, my own resources, my own abilities. Last week, if you were with us, we were in chapter 2. At the end of verse 16, he just throws out this little comment. And who is equal to such a task? talking about being the aroma of Christ. And the answer is nobody. 
Nobody. Nobody has it. Rather, and that's the point, rather the issue is having your faith and dependence and allowing Christ to live his life in us and through us by the power of his Holy Spirit. To accomplish not our purposes, his purposes that are beyond our capabilities, our giftings, and even our weaknesses. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how educated you are. I don't care how much experience you have. Somewhere along the line, you hit the wall. And you go, Jesus, I don't have it. But you do. But you do. And that's the point. When when we lean into Christ, when we look to what He wants to do in us and through us. Again, at verse 6, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now next week, we're going to continue through this chapter, and we're going to focus more in on the What is the difference between the letter and the Spirit and this new covenant and an old covenant? We'll get deeper into this in chapter 3. But today, we're just going to stay here. The focus on the sufficiency and or the competence of Christ for those who follow Him. That is what we lean into. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Yet not I, but Christ in me. It really follows a lot of what the Apostle Paul said in his first letter because sometimes his competence is actually shown in our weakness or what the world says we lack. Back to chapter 1 of the first letter, verse 18 through 20. Even the gospel is foolish in the eyes of the world. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then that same chapter, just moving on, because I don't want to read the whole passage, verses 28 through 31. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a great truth to lean into. Whether that's even in our weakness. Excuse me for one minute. I'm having a moment of weakness as my throat is itching crazily. So, <coughs> Pardon me. Our competence is in Christ. Even in areas where we may seem not so wise, not so strong, 
not so talented. Again, as I pointed out, the Apostle Paul had a lot going for him, right? But think about this. He was a sworn enemy of Christ and his kingdom. And Jesus reaches down in his life and turns him completely around. And so much of what he was called to, he had to lean on Christ in his weakness because he was totally vulnerable. But somehow, Jesus seemed to use him, right? He was the greatest proponent of the spreading of the gospel, and he wrote a good majority of our New Testament because his competency was in Christ. And folks, that's more the rule than the exception. Let me just give you a quick sample size of just Christian history, real quickly. It's not everything, it's not exhaustive, but... Let me just rifle through a few things. Even Jesus' apostles. I don't know if you've been watching the, the, the show The Chosen, but you look at some of those uh, apostles, those disciples, you go, you've got to be kidding me. Jesus wants to use these guys, four fishermen, a, a tax collector nobody likes, Simon the Zealot, who's kind of probably part you know, patriot, part terrorist, and all the rest. And yet, God uses them to turn the world upside down. In the 4th century, God does a work in a libertine. A man of complete reprobate named Augustine changes him from this guy who's just living for the moment to a guy who shapes Christian thought, even Western civilization. And he writes a book called The City of God that we're still looking at today. God works in the most least likely. In the 15th century, there's this fearful monk named Martin Luther who's trying to figure out what it means to please God, and he is just terrified until he reads Romans. And all of a sudden, his eyes are open. And he's facing the Holy Roman Empire, a a whole world system that is completely corrupt and has lost its moorings on the truth of Scripture. And God uses this simple monk to start bring a revolution in his church and a reformation in his church. Then there's this Prussian immigrant who comes to England in the early 1800s named George Mueller who's there originally to, to minister to Jews, but that's not working out. And he notices there are all sorts of orphans on the streets of London. And God raises him up to hand to mouth, start building these orphanages to minister to orphans in London. And he does it without telling anyone, I have this need. There are no support letters. There are, no, there are no reports about his finances, but God just meets them. There's one day where the story is, you know, they're at the breakfast table and there's nothing happening. There's no food in the pantry. And, and they pray, said, God, thank you for the food. What are you talking about, George? You're crazy. And then the baker truck breaks down in front of the, of the house, as well as as well as the, uh, the dairy truck. So they have bread and food that day. 
It's just because Christ was George Mueller's competency. And then there's this nerdy medical assistant named Hudson Taylor, who God gets a hold of and he decides that God is sending him to China. And he goes out there even before he's done with his education. Who does that? And he starts wandering around the streets of China and, and decides, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become all things to all men. And so this blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy dyes his hair black, shaves his front head, puts a, a black pigtail on, and dresses like the Chinese people to reach them. And he gets called for a long time the black, the, the black devil. But eventually God uses him to reach China and he becomes the founder of the China Inland Mission, which has changed its name to Overseas Missions Fellowship, which we're sending a few missionaries soon to that organization. But no one would have chosen that guy to spread the gospel in, in China. And then 70 years later, there's this English parlor maid named Gladys Allworld Allward, who wants to go to China, and she's going to, to missionary school, and they say, Gladys, you have a great heart. You're a terrible student. You're not learning enough, so you, you can't do this. But she says, no, I know God has a call in my life. So she goes back to being a parlor maid, earns her money, and ships herself out there, not knowing where she's going, and finds herself working with donkey trains out in, in China, and God uses her to reach thousands for Christ. And during World War II, she leads all these orphan children away from the Japanese who are trying to attack them. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame those that are wise. A simple country boy from North Carolina named Billy senses God is calling him to preach, and he doesn't know why. But he starts doing these tent revivals. And suddenly people are putting their faith in Christ. And all he says is, the Bible says. And suddenly people are putting their faith in Christ. By some, his gospel is way too simple. And yet many have put their faith in Christ because of Billy Graham. A former drug addict, maybe even drug dealer, client of Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge a few years ago, was thrown out of his house, and yet Jesus got a hold of him, started working with him, transforming him, changing him. He became a chaplain eventually for that ministry. He's now the center director here in Rochester, a guy named David Hunter. God uses the foolish things. And then there's this drama student from California who's trying to figure out what God is trying to tell him to do in his life. And the drama thing is not working out. It's just causing more drama in his life. But then the Lord starts moving him towards ministry. And he says, what are you doing in my life, God? I never set out to do this. But for one thing, from college students, to inner city ministry, to singles, to worship, to CE, and then eventually to become a senior pastor in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm telling you, I would not be here unless I believed that Christ was my competency. But that's what he did. That's what he did. And my friend, 
my brother, my sister, if you are a follower of Christ, if He is in your heart, He wants to be your competency today. Whatever you're doing, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your ministry, whether it's just living life, He wants you to be set free by that truth. I am your competency. And once you know that, it takes the pressure off. For you to have to be the one to make those things happen. It has to be Christ in you. Not just in ministry, in life. You know, on Friday I read this devotional called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. As I was preparing for this. And this was the heading. He said, Will your response today be shaped more by fear of your inability, or by the celebration of Christ's sufficiency. Let me read that again. Will your response today be shaped more by fear of your inability, or by the celebration of Christ's sufficiency? Do you know that Christ is sufficient? He is sufficient for you. He is your competency. And if so, what are you trusting Him to do in you and through you, that you cannot do yourself. What a great reality to lean into. What a great thing to trust Him for. You know, in a moment here, I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and if you guys would make your ways up here, that would be great. And we're going to sing a song called, All I Have is Christ. The song is not a declaration of our poverty. It's a declaration of our riches in Him. So as we sing that today, I pray that you would know that if you are in Christ, He is your sufficiency and He wants to do a way beyond what you can ask or imagine in Him and through Him. So, let me pray and then we'll go ahead and worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this great, encouraging passage here today. And would you give us grace to lean into all that who you are. It is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon you and your work in us and through us. Give us freedom to lean into that and give us boldness in what you want to do in us and through us. Thank you, Jesus, for being our sufficiency and for being our great Savior. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.